Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shimpton. And today, I'm joined by curator and film historian Alicia Fletcher and programmer of the Eastern Promises film series, Eastern You. It's hard to adapt a book to a film. Short stories often make better movies because they contain less that needs to be expressed in the film. Books also often have the voice of a narrator, which can be impossible to replicate within the world, unless voiceover is used, or another convention. One of my favorite examples where I prefer the movie to the book is High Fidelity, where they give John Cusack's character the power to address the camera and drive the narrative. Today, we're going to look at two films that are book adaptations that not only have distinctive narrative voices within the books, they aren't the first, nor will they be the last adaptations of these stories. But before we get into that, Eastern, what to you makes a successful book adaptation? I I thought about this last night, and um, truly what makes a great film adaptation is that the filmmaker has a deep grasp of the film form. It's simple as that. I don't think being faithful to the book necessarily succeeds in making a great adaptation. I think you need to know how to make a great film. And you use the book as um, definitely the map. And yes, you want to be faithful mostly. And I did say no, but you know, David uh, Cronenberg's Naked Lunch is an exception to that in many ways. (laughs) And succeeds as a film, right? So you you have that and then, but... You know, if we were to talk about Narnia, like, I feel like that movie, you know, I've learned it's a very fat, faithful adaptation, but does it succeed as a film? I, I would, I don't know if it does necessarily, and we can talk about that. So I think through this discussion of Narnia, we will learn what really makes an adaptation succeed. I think you're right. Alicia, do you have any favorite adaptations that you're like, this worked for me? Uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula by Francis Ford Coppola, which definitely <laughs> How did okay. I know is you were not a faithful, that. I mean, in some ways it's the most faithful of adaptations because it brings back the epistolary um, format to the story, which is all being written in letters and telegrams and things like that. Um, but then it also mashes in, you know, a century of vampire lore and brings a love story into the film that's not that's only hinted at in the book that's not really there brings in sex but to me somehow what it got was the whole vibe the whole mood the whole attraction to Dracula and put that on screen it, and so therefore it is a faithful adaptation and that's that that there is it's the film form it's the mise-en-scene it's the mood it's the mode yeah it turns out Francis Ford Coppola most of the time knows how to make a film exactly like, <laughs> I love that film so much like 75 percent again just the director has to just it has to be in their heart and their soul and in their blood they need to love the book too and I think when exactly. we go to talk about Chronicles of Narnia the first uh, film line the witch in the wardrobe I I don't see this director's love of this story 
at all. When you look at movies where there's a series of books and multiple different directors and the different points of view, um, although it's meant to be one big whole, I'm thinking specifically of like um, the Harry Potter films, it's interesting to see which one of them has magic in it. And I think that's something we're also going to be talking about with Narnia and which ones don't. So like I think about the the early ones, which were directed by Christopher Columbus, like the first one, there's no magic in that movie because they're so concerned about setting up the world and who these characters are that they don't take the time. But like then you'd have like a four and a half hour long movie for children. So how do you how do you then kind of combine those two things if you're doing this like big expansive world? And the only way to do it, I guess, is television series if you're looking at something that expansive. Did either of us grow up with the BBC 1988 Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, like, I think six part, possibly four part. Specifically, I can remember the sound of the wheels on the audio visual cart being rolled into the classroom (laughs) and being, oh, baby, we're going to be eating Turkish delight in no time. We watched that every year, twice a year. I don't even know. Like, I grew up with that. And it was, um, I think I loved it. I would be really curious to rewatch it. I think I had that kind of perception of... That apparently was a kind of a great adaptation, even though it didn't have the technology, which in 2005 we do. And it's not a great adaptation. It's often something that I am always very hesitant if I have read the book to see the movie because I've got a very vivid imagination and I'm always very concerned that what I and it never will be what I have in my head is going to be different than what's on the screen and the choices they make are going to be different. The only exception I have to that and I think that's what makes Stephen King so magical and special is that you can put so many different interpretations on his prolific works and some of them work and some of them don't but they're always something unique and special. So I think about something like Misery. I think about something like The Mist. I think about Carrie. You know even um, we talked about Stand By Me, Christine, right? I mean, Rob Reiner just knows how to do adaptations, obviously. That's what he's doing. Same with uh, Frank Darabont, right? Um, some people just get it and they know how to find the cores of those stories. So I'm curious, Eastern, what is, do you, have you thought about what your favorite page to screen adaptation is? Um, well, you know, I confess I haven't read that many books to that have gone into an adaptation. I think um, you mentioned Becky High Fidelity. That was one of my favorite movies as I was growing up in my yeah teenage years just feeling rejected and just feeling like someone did mention it's like oh you're like John Cusack because I was just like my arms were around and I was just very eccentric charismatic and all that (laughs) but I was never getting the lady so that movie was like my uh it was my what was that book it's my um Catcher in the Rye you know what I mean like it was like my mirror (laughs) movie right it was just like I wanted to work at Suspect Video I wanted to work at a cool record store I really like fell in love with being a nerd and you know just wallowing in my interiority but uh and so then I did read the book and was pleasantly surprised that they both are like a beautiful balance with each other Um, and -hmm. the book is is different in some ways but the essence of both is so similar so that succeeded oh the apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz okay yes you guys so I remember reading that book because I'm not a big you know I, I just picked it up and uh, Mordecai Richler, I did. I just heard of him. He was just like this old, you know, Montreal writer. Fine, cool. And then I, I couldn't stop reading that book, and I finished it in a night or like in two days. And I laughed my ass off, especially in the uh, description of the wedding, uh, the wedding scene, the wedding film. And it was written like a screenplay. I remember just bursting into laughter, and then watching the movie at Innis Town Hall on thirty-five millimeter because somehow we got a print of it. I was amazed by um, what's his name, 
from Jaws. Uh, Richard, Richard Dreyfuss. Dreyfuss. I was, he, I was like, oh. It's one of his greatest performances. He's so and young. You know, he actually I mean, talked a little shit about that movie. He said it was a bad movie. He more than that. Okay, he refused to acknowledge it. He did not do it. Sorry, I interviewed Ted Kotcheff about that movie. So I know, right, okay, a, lot of, I know yeah. a lot about Daddy, about Daddy Krabs because it's one of my favorites as well. I'm so glad you brought it up. But um, yeah, he talked so much shit about it. He refused to do any press. He disowned it. And then the reason why he did Jaws was he was terrified his career was over. So he originally said no to Jaws. And then he saw some of the screeners from Daddy Kravitz and went, oh shit, my career is over. I better take something quick so that people forget about this. He called up Steven Spielberg and says, yeah, I'll do your movie. So he does did Jaws because... That's amazing. I, I mean, I can't believe that we all three love that movie. I've never met another person who loves that movie. I oh, was amazed. So going special. back to that wedding scene in the movie, it's like it felt verbatim. And I was laughing my ass off in the theater, just like when I was laughing when I was reading it. So I think from page to screen, having not read that many books because I spent time watching movies, that was an excellent adaptation. I think you're pretty well read. I think you're not giving yourself, I know you pretty well, Eastern. You're not giving yourself enough credit. I'm, I'm not sure you're aware of how the average, how little the average person reads. It is an incredibly depressing If Alicia reads but... at uh, an eight, Becky a nine, Eastern will read at like a five. And then. <laughs> but five is probably still we'll better than the two, two that the average person is bringing to the game. I mean, I tell you, I tell <laughs> you, what, I, you know, and, and right now, if we want to talk about adaptations, I think um, I'm now reading Dune after watching the movie. And I'm oh. very surprised because I do the retroactive reading. Right. And yeah, I'm yeah. really surprised about while I'm reading it, I, I'm now seeing the decisions that Denis Villeneuve has made in his movie. And it goes back to my whole thesis about adaptations are run by auteurs who have a calling to tell this story. I can see the economic efficiencies that he's making condensing scenes into just one lines or moments into the film, but it's the mise-en-scene, it's the mood, it's the tone, it's the vision, the cinema that makes Dune a great adaptation of the book. It's not, hmm. did I get all these characters in? Are they doing this? Are we paying attention to the plot? Are we doing all that? Do we need to you send know? people a glossary yeah. so they and, understand and what to do? Yeah, and adding, adding sound design to that mix is something a book can never really do. And I think, you know, no matter what you think of Dune, and I actually was quite satisfied by it, that sound design and the way that the landscape is designed through audio is incredible and it is dune it somehow is dune even though when you're reading the book obviously you can't hear the sounds well eastern i'm really glad that you brought up points of view and having a love of the films because i think we're going to see that a lot in the two films that we're talking about today so let's get into our first one um so the lion the witch and the wardrobe has had four screen adaptations already the first was a 10-part miniseries for the bbc in 1967 the second was an animated film from 79 directed by peanuts own bill melendez which got a heavy rotation in my my own childhood, and the third was a BBC movie which featured live-action animatronics and some animation. Oh, and uh, nightmarish beaver-human hybrids. It would take until 2005, and let's face it, the budget of Disney and the advancement of CGI to bring the story to the big screen. Now, the story is a dark one for children, but the three previous versions did their best to make it fun and accessible. The 2005 version, however, opens with the bombing of London and the children scrambling for a bunker, letting the audience know this ain't going to be your granddaddy's Narnia, or your daddy's for that matter. Eastern, do you have any particular attachment to the Narnia stories? Nope. 
not, <laughs> but I'm watching Narnia through the lens that I am the biggest fan of C.S. Lewis's last fictional novel, Till We Have Faces. And apparently it's mm -hmm. a novel where um, people who dislike Narnia or don't care for Narnia are absolute lovers and worship Till We Have Faces, which is his, it, it, it's completely different. So I'm watching this and as I'm watching Narnia, I'm kind of seeing that, you know, people grow and become different. So that's the, sorry for the tangent there, but uh, no, I'm not attached to Narnia whatsoever. They didn't play it in my schools when I was young. So I got nothing. So watching it as an adult, impatiently, uh, it was, it, there's nothing there for me. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Apologies. <laughs> oh boy. Well, no, I appreciate that. But I think it's also important sometimes to look at things and go, because I don't think this is a successful adaptation as well. Alicia, I know you don't. Um, but I think what's really interesting about this movie and part of why we're talking about it is why not? Why doesn't this work? And why did the series, which was planned to be huge and epic, peter out? It's like a relationship, like online dating. Like on paper, you might be a 99% match and like all of your interests are aligned and, and you're attracted to each other. And then when in real life, when you just go to try to figure out what that chemistry is it's just not there and there's no there's no real reasoning why although I think there's a lot of reasons why this doesn't work and that's the intentions of the filmmakers but uh yeah the chemistry the the magic the the world is just flat so before we get into that if someone has somehow not seen the lion the witch the wardrobe it's fine if you have not seen you know voyage of the dawn treader that's okay <laughs> you don't need to have that on your list but alicia do you want to give us a uh, quick plot summary of the lion the witch the wardrobe please there's a lion there's a witch you meet them by going through a wardrobe <laughs> this is actually the second book in c.s lewis's narnia chronicles of narnia so the first one is the magician's nephew but i understand why disney would stick to this film first because i know when we were reading this as a kid you always would gravitate towards line the witch in the wardrobe and maybe go back to magician's nephew but probably rarely um this so weirdly the Nar magician's nephew is actually the sixth book this is the sixth or the seventh book that was written but this was the first book that was or sorry that was that was released this is the line the witch in the wardrobe's first book that was written so there's like a weird chronological jumping that happens does that make sense? Yes. There yes. Okay. Yes. Who is on first? I don't know. I, I, so I think great. at a certain point when they like renumbered the stories, probably in the 80s or 90s for a new generation, book number one was Magician's Nephew, regardless Correct. of that being published much, much later. And uh, the story, but the story takes place earlier. N none of this is, this is neither here nor there. <laughs> it does not matter. Um, but this is a story of the Pevensey's uh, children, four, four of them, um, very British name, who... Uh, are, you know, in the Blitz and England basically shipped their children off into the countryside and they were uh, fostered by volunteer families in rural areas to try to protect them from being killed by the bombs. Uh, they put little like Paddington bear tags on the kids and stick them on a train and then they get off on a platform at a place that they've never been to before. And it's some sort of um, professor who's going to take them in in this like sprawling estate and this very dusty old home that happens to have a wardrobe. Um, while playing hide and seek, <laughs> uh, the, the littlest girl, Lucy, goes to hide in the wardrobe and is transported to Narnia, where she finds out that humans are kind of illegal through Mr. Tumnus, here played by James McAvoy and uh, sporting very bad CGI goat legs. And essentially, the White Witch is known as Jaden. I think it's Jaden or Jadis. Jadis. Jadis needs to kill the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve in order to retain her control over this 
um, ever long winter world. And if she doesn't, it's slowly going to start to spring, turn to spring and to summer. And Aslan the lion, who was originally going to be Brian Cox. And all I can picture is him saying fuck off to every single like Alice succession, <laughs> which is funny because we also have a succession actor in Pride and Prejudice, which completely skewed my understanding of that film. Um Aslan's going to fight the, you know, there's battles. There's not that many battles in the book. This becomes like a Lord of the Rings somehow through Disney-fication. Yeah, I don't know. It's filmed in Auckland. It looks good sometimes, but most of the time it doesn't. And I, I think I don't love hating on films for this podcast, but I really hate this film because I loved these books so much. And I grew up on that BBC 1988 miniseries. Um, and I think this is just an incredible disappointment. Because 2001 is the the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And that one, they also didn't start with The Hobbit. They started with The Lord of the Rings. So it's interesting that, like, you're kind of True. jumping forward in these stories and you're pushing people into, like, uh, into into the world in a different way where you're not giving them the introductory. You need to know who Bilbo is. You need to know who the magician is, right? Or who the, that the magician's nephew is the Jim Broadbent character in this. Like, you just kind of wink at it. And you need to know that all of the movies were planned as a series and that Disney was on board for all seven working with uh, Walden Media. However, they stopped after the third one because there was just diminishing returns for this. The second one, uh, Prince Caspian made half of what this one did. And then the next one made half of that. Like, it's just, it was not I mean, worth that it. That being said, the three films in combination made $1.5 billion yeah. worldwide. So that's that's just how insane the margin is on films like this for a company like Disney. Like, you would think half a billion dollars each when you divide is a good profit and Disney's like not enough. It's it's not enough to justify <laughs> continuing this I story. I think what's difficult for me though and, and stop me if you guys think this think I'm wrong is that one of the things that doesn't work for me is they haven't figured out who this movie is for. So they're trying to make it for older kids because when you open it up and I, I was so shocked by that opening where it starts in a German bomber and then mm-hmm. they're bombing London and then you watch the kids run and I'm just like this is which is not horrifying. in the book at all where we start the book at on the all. train yeah and in the book like it's insinuated because you would know what that was when C.S. Lewis was writing these you would know why the kids were going to get away from the bombings however in 2005 we're so far away from that I wonder if they had to remind people this is why this was the emergency situation these kids had to be sent away to strangers so they were like here's the stakes of why these kids are gone but then it turns like Narnia into almost a trauma fever dream like it's very weird I I think the execution was just simply not satisfying for me I'm okay with starting the movie with German bombs um, in London to, for context, I was just, you know, kind of appalled by the CGI airplanes at the very beginning. And there was just no sense of delicacy or nuance in that direction. And all I could see, once I saw the boy looking out the windows, fascinated by the fireworks display of the bombs, I was like, you should have started the scene there. You should have started like the mom looking worried and concerned. Don't start with ghastly CGI and being post Lord of the Rings, I think Weta worked on this, right? The guy the, the Yeah, well, they did all, right. they did everything. Yeah, and and after Lord of the Rings, they they had this sense they had there was a lot of hubris. There was a lot of arrogance in in their CG work and they're just like, "Oh, we can do anything it fe- felt like." And it was like, "No, you need to relearn storytelling and not depend on CGI in 2005 especially." You need to study the anatomy of goats more <laughs> and to, the minotaurs i think there's so many minotaurs the yeah the legs on james mcavoy because i'll buy him as mr tumnus sure from the waist up i guess i was halfway there and then as soon as that camera scrolled down i was like what nightmare is this 
<laughs> this is, and I know that um, Weta was looking at Bosch's uh, Garden of Earthly Delights, which I think is a really interesting reference point as a painting. I mean, for I'm sure all of our listeners know that painting, but think about, you know, the guys with the flutes up their butts and stuff like that. Um, I love that that's the reference, but I don't see that in this film. I don't see that surrealism or that anarchy or that messiness, which frankly, I want some messiness. Everything is too, as you say, Eastern clean and CGI'd and like still somehow looks imperfect. And, 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 you know, the way they introduced the mother, I just felt her performance was so stale. I felt like um, that just, yeah. we didn't give her a, a glance, a moment. She was acting worried without being the mother worried, you know? And you can say that for the kids too. Like you don't spend enough time with the kids. Like one of the reasons that I, and I know Harry Potter is very controversial right now, but one of the reasons we love the Harry Potter books is because it's easy to relate to all of those children. I think the other reason why children love these C.S. Lewis books because they are dealing with children. It's from their point of view and they are in danger, but not in danger at the same time. It's a very hard balance to ride, even though the stakes are very high. Here, you never actually feel like the kids are in danger and you don't like the kids particularly oh, much. The kids no don't get way. much to do. No, and, and it, you know, it, so many things come into play to make a great work right so like like alicia had said it's kind of like dating it's like we have we have the checklist like this movie has weta like weta just owned the world with lord of the rings with special effects like you know we we all know that uh or we don't know but i i read or becky you told me that c.s lewis never wanted a film adaptation of this because it would look like mm -hmm. complete buffoonery like creatures and he was right well he was in this one it was yeah. like we're 70 percent there we're almost not buffoonery but alas we entered buffoonery and I think there's so many elements to make a movie that you may have you have a cast you have the budget you have the, you have Weta behind you but you know let's let's say like it is Adam at uh what's it Andrew Adamson did he have a heart for this story you know or was he just was this just a job? I think this was his second feature film. You know, if you uh, well, should we just say that his he comes from animation and his first film is Shrek. Right. Like that's it, the his debut. Of, so he's coming from a, a totally different world. Yeah. Right? So it, there's nothing in his resume that says that he can do this job um, on a level of nuance and human and, and human character driven. Yeah piecing. You know. So you know, and I, and we talk about the the goat legs, whatever the lamb legs. If that was Guillermo del Toro, he would be obsessed with like the how those legs are made. And, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and it was going to be del Toro, but he turned oh. it down for Pan's Labyrinth. And good thing he did, because we 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 required a Pan's Labyrinth at that time. And we got better goat <laughs> legs in that fab, movie. The, we did. We got the a better best, fun. <laughs> the best goat legs. I mean, I mean, if anything, uh, this movie had great Turkish delight. You know. OK, that was my question for you, because um, this actually traumatized me as a kid because I grew up with this book and I always wanted to try Turkish Delight. Um, living in Mississauga in the 80s, Turkish Delight was not really at the grocery store. Like I would have had to go to a specialty store, but my dad traveled to Istanbul for business and brought me back Turkish Delight. And I can remember taking a bite and just being like, oh, why? What? <laughs> what is this? Like, this is garbage. And now I think as an adult, I like it a bit more but what does do either of you like turkish delight i've never had it it looks so good. 
I did. You've never had a big turk. No, no. That's no, not turk. Okay, turkey but that's not turkey. Well, what that it's not. No, like, we're talking about like, like the... sugary, like snowflakes on something it's like powdered. Yeah, it's, like... it's like a gel- gelatinous, yeah. usually rose water, pistachio, potentially covered in like a powdered sugar, and there would be no chocolate, like in a big turk scenario whatsoever. Yeah. And it's certainly not high fructose corn syrup. <laughs> big turk scenario. <laughs> sounds well, like a well, you know what? This is a great. It's a great metaphor for how out of touch we are with that era. Right. And these yes. kids and these totally. kids are just like, I'm like, I I, re- I wrote something when well, I watched it. I said, if I had to hang out with these kids, I like at their age, if I was that old, if I was nine and I had to hang out with these kids, I'd feel so left out and lonely. Like the I wouldn't get along <laughs> with them. I wouldn't. Like I just think that they're just like, ugh. Yeah, I get that. And I mean the I guess the other thing to keep in mind, which is good that we have the blitz contacts, like obviously sugar is rationed hugely in England. So these kids probably haven't had a sweet in like two years or if they had it's very um sparse so you kind of I, like i love when edmund digs into that like gooey gooey it looks like almost like a jelly donut like i felt it but i don't know i think there's more to your point eastern and i really like that i love also i'm sad that you wrote down that these kids would reject you um no no i would reject them <laughs> yeah that's fair. i would fair. reject yes. them <laughs> you think... you wanted to, did you not listen to him talking about high fidelity he wants to be the cool outsider yeah. that's what eastern i is. think what this is also missing and what it convolutes is britishness this is a british yes. story it's a british context and the reason it didn't get made despite um disney trying in the 90s is because they were not convinced that British culture would translate to American audiences and they wanted to start to set this film with American kids in the US, which was a horrible idea. And the only thing that really got this greenlit, as Becky mentioned, is because Harry Potter was such a huge success, it proved that British culture could be exported to um, like a children's franchise and get major, major dollars. But I still think they are half-assing the Britishness in this. Like, yes, these actors, for the most part, have British accents. I think all of them do, except for, I think they're all British. Maybe there's only one. that I can't remember who was the one non- Oh, Ray Win. No, Ray Winstone, oh, as a beaver, Oh, he from is the British. UK. He's from the UK. Yeah, I was thinking maybe he's Australian, because we just did the, I mean, if you liked Ray Winstone in the proposition, let me tell you, <laughs> Ray Winstone as Mr. Beaver. <laughs> We, I mean, we did we, talk about can the proposition. We do, can, you guys already did the proposition. Where was oh. it's the next episode? Wait. Yeah, it's. Oh, you already did it too. You, you yeah, just need we were, a cameo yeah. with me. Like, I'll just like, what's the plot <laughs> synopsis? Okay, well, let's hear what Eastern has to say because I have... I should have thought about that for you. Yeah, it's our it's our finale. So our finale is always Becky Cam Alicia, and I forced them to watch the proposition. But then that meant I had to watch Wolf Creek. It was a bit of a you know oh, eye for an eye. The, but um... I was literally thinking. <laughs> anyway, okay, yeah, go on, go on. Please. Coming back to <laughs> to the Britishness, it's just not no, there. Yeah. It's not there. The British whimsy, like I think, in the last fifteen years or sixteen years since this film came out we know that things like Downton Abbey like North America is obsessed with British culture and it works really well at the box office and it works really well for viewership and I just wish they had doubled down a bit more on that world that C.S. Lewis created with all the Turkish delight and all the strange you know UK like slang that we will not understand I don't care like I want that I want a different world to fall into and this is just 
not a real world to me. And it did also didn't feel different enough from the two. Like I want to see one of the. I grew up with the animation, and the animation is very clear. This is the real world. This is the magic world. There is danger here. There's danger here. It's just a different yeah. kind of danger. But like it's it's very clear. And then the the lamp post is the demarcation of that. Right. It's the guiding light home to get back to a place of safety. And at no point do you really feel like these kids are in danger here, even when they're in the middle of an epic battle. Because again, who is this for? So the battle is scaled back. It can't be like an orcs tearing each other up with giant machetes. It's also kind rated of thing, PG, right? which or maybe even G. I mean, it's interesting. We've we've talked for twenty minutes and not even brought up that Tilda Swinton is in this, which is a brilliant <sighs> act of casting. Because who else could it be? But I, even in that in that case where she looks phenomenal, costumes great. I don't buy it. I'm a and she's not given enough oh, to do. I, I found her dreads offensive in 2022. Um, <laughs> yeah. so. yes. It was also supposed to be Michelle Pfeiffer, but this was when she was on her hiatus. Who's like the other person? I'm like, okay, we saw her do an amazing witch in Stardust. She she could have pulled that off, yeah. but I mean, Tilda's just so otherworldly. Yeah, you throw some contact lenses on her. I think she knew that this wasn't going well, and you can see the behind the scenes photos of the kids trying to act against a green screen. The wonder is completely flat. There is no one in this film and I really wish it was Brian Cox as Aslan I think Liam Neeson is fine but I just kept thinking no I thought he was miscast I agree I think okay. Liam Neeson wasn't fine I felt like when when a voice doesn't fit or suit the character it feels like it's out of sync for me and I yeah. felt like that with him I just need a little bit more uh I, I could go for Brian Cox I would audition Cox have you forgotten the laws upon which Narnia was built do not cite the deep magic to me witch I was there when it was written. Aslan's supposed to be both, he's gentle with the children, but he's meant to be scary. And Brian Cox would have delivered that, I think, really, really well if he could mind his P's and Q's. Who would you give it to, Eastern? I'd give it to Idris Elba if we had to make this in 2022. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. But I think that's part of the complication of why this film doesn't work is they're trying to simplify it too much. for Like, they're trying to make it too much for kids. And having a small person of my own, it is important to traumatize children every now and then. Like, it's important to be like, you know, not soften things too much. And Aslan does scare the children initially. They are frightened of him. And at no point, again, the danger is not there. At no point are they like, are we supposed to trust this? He is a lion. Like, we are supposed to be afraid of lions. They are wild animals and they are killers. But that's not the case here. And he has to kind of gain their trust. And he understands that. Right. So the moment when he's sacrificed by the white witch and the girls cry over him, that's meant to be a turning point of them realizing what he has done for them. And they were afraid of him. And there's a mild amount of shame there. And I mean, that ties into the whole Jesus thing. Right. Like, here's this person with like this phenomenal power that we are in awe of and frightened of. And then he makes a sacrifice for us. And only when he comes back, do we truly appreciate who he is oh, and what Jesus. he's going to do for us. Right. Like it's again, I'm not a religious person, but that's what that's yeah. what the story is coming from. And that's the power of it. I mean, and we it's know not with there because C.S. Lewis it. and Tolkien, who were buddies, they were in a literary group called the Inklings and quite close throughout their lives. Like that religious iconography is there throughout the Lord of the Rings trilogy Both. and The Hobbit. And it's certainly here um, just sort of distilled for children in Narnia. And I think that's another thing that 
Disney gets wrong. Is that exactly what you're saying, Becky? That wondrousness of Aslan coming back to life because the children believe in him and because he sacrificed. It's just dealt with so like matter of factly. It's like, okay, well, the little miceys eat the stringies off of his paws and then up he goes. <laughs> it's just... Well, it's also the power of the animation. Like I remember when I was a kid seeing it, this is man, such a vivid memory. It's weird when those come back, where in the animation the girls are trying to tear the mice off him because they think he's they're eating the corpse. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the danger of this. And then they realize, oh, no, they're let, letting his bindings free. And it's just like, I'm sorry, I'm crying thinking about just how powerful that moment actually is and how soft it is in the movie. And it's, I'm getting upset here. I'm like, you fucked it up. Like, it's, it's how do you mess I, that I, up? You made it too I soft. I mean, I think, yes, it's one, it's Disney. And two, it's it's a different era that we grew up with like when yeah. kids' movies were far more dangerous, right? And yeah. and kids' movies were just like, you know, the age-old fables and, and folk tales were meant to kind of teach you a lesson and, and not shy away from humanity. Uh, and it's all of its shades and flaws. And But this one is just um, the Botox version of the film, even though it what a great it, way it follows it. all of the plot structure That's of the third. book. Apparently, I watched something on YouTube where it's like it's actually a faithful adaptation. <laughs> but here's the thing: if you're faithful, you're not that faithful. This is the whole point. You know, the, the literary medium and the cinematic medium they can get that. Sometimes those marriages don't work. It was all on paper, like Alicia said, and these ones don't work, right? Okay, so divorce. And after the third one, we get no conclusion and kids don't learn a a single thing from watching this. I want to see the stop motion. I want to see stop motion Narnia. Is that possible? Can Wes Anderson swoop in, get his like fantastic Mr. Fox and Isle of Dogs guys and just and ladies and people and just like make the stop motion Narnia? I mean, it's a different. I don't even care. Like, I don't care for these kids. I don't care for Brit- British kids in the 40s who come from a certain class. Like, yeah. if they were street kids and like, and and like. You like plucky yeah, kids. You are yeah. not I don't, here I don't for care for the middle class this. kids who just have so much naivete. <laughs> and I did appreciate the attempt for the Cain and Abel between the brothers. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. That, w- that was interesting. And I do have to give credit to Tilda. When I did watch it, the moment when her eyes are completely black after the sacrifice of the lions. Let's give credit to the cameo appearances of Lord of the Ring villains and orcs that are in this. And it's like, you know, it's like where we have these awful CG animals, ferrets and raccoons. It looks like the Lord of the Rings auditions. They were like, okay, you guys all made it into Lord of the Rings. And then you are the B team. We've got another film for you. You're not quite good enough (laughs) for Lord of the Rings. Um, you're not there. scary enough. So just come back tomorrow and we'll put you on Narnia. Yeah. We're going to give you bigger axes than swords so you can swing them a little slower. It's going to be fine. But at the end of the day, it, these these movies must be so hard to make. I, I have a lot of sympathy yeah. for the filmmaker. Um, he was tasked with something so huge. And this was only his second film after Shrek. I mean, he didn't have the experience. Denis Villeneuve has been making movies for over 20 years to make mm-hmm. Dune. And it was in his heart since he was a teenage boy, right? He, there was a calling, you know, uh, Rob Reiner, when he's making a Stephen King adaptation, it's in his soul and he will bleed the movie and work as hard as he can for it. Um, but he was also those kids. Rob Reiner was well, the, that same age as that kids at that he, time, he, he, right? That's it, right? That He identified with them. And and um, for, for Andrew, he just... They, they took a shot and they tried and uh, 
you don't still see made a ton of money. I mean, I know we were, we're talking right. about this as a box office bomb. It wasn't. It you know it opened third. Um, it made a lot of money, one point five billion across the three films worldwide. This was I my sense of this film too is probably huge in Asia, probably huge in Europe. Like I think there was maybe something that resounded more with that audience than with North American audiences. And Becky, you have a kid, right? How old How old is your child? So ha- have they seen this? Uh, honestly, I started to watch it with them and they got bored. They, got bored. they were That's not it. into yeah, it fair enough. Failed the test. Now, have That's they ha- ever had Turkish yeah. delight? No, no, they have not. Let's... However, they love jelly babies and whatnot. So I'm going to presume okay. that there might be You could be take interest, a little jelly so... baby and then roll it in some powdered sugar and call it Turkish Delight. <laughs> Here you go. Uh, yeah, we haven't. Uh, if if I were to approach this story again with them, I would read them the book. I would yeah. not. Uh, I would not approach the adaptation. The books are magical. This was, you know, I read these. It was kind of like Lord of the Rings light. If I read these at 10 and 11 and I remember getting like a hardcover set for Christmas and just enjoying them so much and then being able to work up then to the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Um, I don't think a lot of kids are reading the Chronicles of Narnia, even though there's that great SNL digital short, you know, Eastern, you want to talk about that? Your face just lit No, up no, no. I, 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 I know nothing of Narnia and the digital short, but I... It's I, Andy Samberg and was it Will Parnell? I can't remember who else is in its short. Do you, neither of you remember this? The Chronicle, uh, the rap Chronicles I'll tell of you Narnia? What, I don't care about SNL the way I don't care about Narnia. But this is 17 years ago, <laughs> SNL, I think. Uh, like, it's like, and, well, maybe Andy not. Maybe Samberg it's 17, it's crazy. Even thinking about 2005 is almost 20 years ago is insane. Yeah. Like, this was, they yeah. probably did this short. This was like a really famous digital short, like the kind of beginning of Lonely Island doing like the best, like dick in a box. Like it's that era. And there's one for Chronicles of Narnia where they get high and they go see Chronicles of Narnia. Um, I feel like our listeners might know it. <laughs> I hope. Uh, maybe maybe, <laughs> maybe I'll, maybe I'll check it out short. Send me a link later. All right. Okay. With that having been said, I'm going to bring us into our next movie, which I think has the grit that this one is missing. We're going to be talking about the 2005 adaptation, as well as, yes, we're going to bring up the pig testicles like everybody else. That's coming up after the break. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast.
There are at least 17 different film and TV adaptations and interpretations of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, including modern riffs like Bridget Jones's Diary, the Bollywood-inspired Bride and Prejudice, and the frankly bananas Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies, which I admit I have read, although I will not see the movie. The sexy will-they-or-won't-they story of Elizabeth Bennet, Fitzwilliam Darcy, and the Bennet and Bingley families is one that people love to see in various forms over and over again and which is the definitive version is a hotly debated topic. Up for contention, though, is the 2005 version with Kira Knightley and Matthew McFadden as Elizabeth and Darcy. Eastern, do you have any love for the Bennets? Oh, yeah, I can appreciate the Bennets. You know, I can especially appreciate the Bennets in this version, especially because of um, the depiction of the class differences. Um, mm-hmm. that are more obvious and apparent, you know, I'm, I'm a, one of the people, you know, if they, they I, I don't care for the <laughs> filthy rich. Right. Um, so there, there's something that I can really appreciate in this film, especially in, in the way that they're depicted. And we can go deeper into that. All right. Well, before we get into that, if somehow someone has avoided a version of Pride and Prejudice at some point in their life, can you just give us a quick rundown of the plot, please? I mean, the rundown of this plot, you got the Bennets, right? It's a family of, what, five daughters? And you got Mr. Mm -hmm. Bennett and Mrs. Bennett. And and this is an era in, well, depicted, I think, in the late 1790s, but the book was published in the 1813 around that time. Mm-hmm. So basically, you got the Bennets who live in the countryside in the suburbs. And Mrs. Bennett desperately wants all her daughters married. And then here comes, uh, uh, what's what's his name, played by Simon Woods, Mr. Bingley and Mr. Darcy come into town. And, and, and they're like, uh-oh. You know, Mrs. Bennett's like, we got it. We got it. We got to hook you up with these boys. They're they're Let's get in they're there. rich. <laughs> they're rich. We got to do them. Jane, my pretty one. You know, uh, Elizabeth, my second prettiest one, and the smart one. Uh, we got it. We got it. Yeah, you've got. So, so she too. starts. She starts pimping them. She's a mistress. She's a madam. Like she's trying to hook them up with these guys because her daughters need to marry. If they don't... Also, she's got nothing else to do. There you go. She's, she's got no... She's this got is Brenda no, Blesslin, who is, a, who is just yes. lovely. No Facebook, lovely. you know, yeah. no no social media, no TV. She This is her one obsession, and and truly, she doesn't want them to ever meet spinsterhood. I get it. I get it, you know? Um, and, and so what happens? Uh, Mr. Bingley and Mr. Darcy, there's a big town hall uh, dance ballroom thing, and she tries to hook them up, and then... Uh, Mr. Darcy's introduced to Elizabeth Bennet. This is what the whole movie's about. And at first, the first impressions are are just lackluster. And there's a little bit of a beef and a tiff and an insult coming from Mr. Darcy. And that kind of makes him attractive in a way. Let's talk about that with women. Like, come on, you know, nice guys finish last. Um, but then there's this thing where, you know, throughout the plot and the film, they kind of discover that they kind of like each other and you kind of understand that Mr. Darcy actually really likes her, but you also learn that Mr. Darcy's really, really, really rich. Um, and there's all this prejudice because there's this misconception of Mr. Darcy. So there's all this wonderful tension. There's this wonderful romantic tension, sexual tension, uh, uh, what's it called, personal tension between the two throughout the drama of everyone trying to get married. Um, and eventually this movie and book is a story about how to match the two right people perfectly. Um, and, you know, sometimes they don't look like a match at first, but really deep down, they are a perfect match for each other. And, and I guess this is why the movie has stood the test of time 
mostly with women, dare I say. Come on, let's face it. Like, you know, like this ain't the John Wick. <laughs> I Gay men as well. Gay men as well. Okay. Well, I mean, like, I appreciate it a lot. So I, I, I love Pride and Prejudice as a story. And I remember reading it in university and really digging the prose and really digging the That's social awesome. commentary um, throughout. And, you know, Jane Austen is not only witty and brilliant, but she just has a complete understanding of social politics, relationship politics, and and, 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 and the world she's trapped and, in and understanding the boundaries of those ex- trap. Exactly. And so why is this, you know, and I get it. Elizabeth Bennett is so amazing. Like it's, it's her soul and her wit and her rhythm and her thinking that makes her um, a complete person. And everybody wants to be Elizabeth Bennett. Like I'm sure if you ask most people, oh yeah, like it's very much an iconic role. So Kira Knightley talking about taking this role, she almost didn't because she was like, this is one of the most iconic roles in literature and people are going to be talking about it and, and me nonstop in this thing. This did get her her first Academy Award nomination. And it's also hard to forget or re- remember, she's 20 mm-hmm. at this point. Like, you know, she was 16 when she did Bend It Blake Beckham and then her career just went bam. And, and she's like 18 in Pirates the Caribbean, right? Because like that yeah. parts of the Caribbean preceded this. And that was kind of why this film got such great funding is because she was bankable and not many other people in this film was. But I do know Joe Wright was very concerned in casting her simply because she was too pretty. And then he met her and was like, oh, no, you'll do just fine. Because <laughs> she's so <laughs> awkward and sort of like, and it works for this character and her performance is that, of course, she's stunningly beautiful. She has all the angles, but she kind of can like, I don't know. She's able to retract that a little bit and she's grubby and doesn't, you know, with her, with the help of costume and hair and makeup, like I get her as a tomboy in this and it it works really well. On cheap trivia from IMDb, I read that uh, Joe Wright made a rule and banned her from her trademark pouting. Um, Mm -hmm. And and so that, that I think helped And And I understand that he did feel, you know, I actually, that's my criticism of her as 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 Miss as Elizabeth Bennet is I do find her too pretty. But in hindsight, okay. through Joe's, you know, direction and rules, I, I think he did. They did pull it off because she was a charming Elizabeth. This is also we should point out the same year as Domino, where she played the real life bounty bounty hunter, which is a completely different film. Tony Amazing. Scott, like very different. So like you're looking <laughs> at these two different performances with which she's good in Domino. It's not a great movie, but like what she is being asked to do, she does well. So it's interesting to see that she's also moving from these like high action swashbuckling things into these period dramas, which would then become her thing. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. She's in Colette. We've had that on Hollywood Suite. I can't remember if it's in window right now, but she is doing like, you know, many years later. Um, she's really kind of got her stronghold, like a foot in this like genre of um, independent Elizabeth Bennett-esque women who were either in real life or in the narrative completely ostracized and had to like break the bonds of patriarchy. Um, Colette is a great example of that, about the the author Colette and her incredible stories. But uh, yeah, I liked I liked I liked her in this. This works for her. This is a great kind of er text for Karen Knightley in period pieces. No, I just think that um, to play Liz, it, it's it's a great feat. It's a you have to be acrobatically like you know you have to be a top athlete in the acrobatics of of wit and acting and performance. And um, I agree that she does nail it. And I don't think just anybody could. True. 
Uh, I'm extremely biased because my favorite version of this is the BBC version with Colin Firth and Jennifer Eel. And Jennifer Lee Eel will always be my Elizabeth. I don't care who else plays sure. her. But I mean, the difference between like a six-part miniseries versus a like 90-minute film, like almost two hours, but like short, 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 is you can't get in all those plot lines with all these characters you love. You can't spend the time. And you really have to choose your focus. And Joe Wright has very much focused on the romance and the social aspect between these two and who these characters are and why they don't connect, there's, which I think is an interesting part of the story. There's so much discussion of money, and I know that's from the book, obviously, like exact figures. And there's a lot of websites you can look at that do the translation or the conversion of like what their actual dowry would equal in today's dollars, what their income based on the investment on their estate would be. Like it's kind of interesting, but I actually appreciated that about this version a little bit more than the BBC version is that I could relate to it as someone who is not abundantly wealthy and is very concerned about housing and is very concerned about my future. Um, and I'm, I find myself unmarriageable at the age that I am currently. So I can kind of relate. Uh, like <laughs> I, I was able to just long-term kind of, partner out the window. <laughs> yeah. I, I've referred to myself as a incoming spinster, I believe on this podcast <laughs> in the past, but um, I got that. Like I got that from this version. I love that. Um, what I don't get from the BBC version and previous versions is everything, I think Eastern, you kind of alluded to this, everything just seems, it's like monotonous because I just think everyone's rich and I don't get the nuance in the BBC version. But in here you see that their house, the Bennett house is reasonably sized, but it's it's covered in pig shit and it's falling apart and everything is dusty and they don't have a cook and they don't have a cleaning person. I think they do have a cook. But like... I just they I, do. It's specifically I'm, called out. Yeah, yes. yeah. yeah but, um, like, I, I get that from this version. And and, and I I have to say, like Joe Wright really nailed the mise en scène. He really nailed yeah. the costumes and the war the the hair especially because I couldn't stop looking at the hair. It was greasy. It was not cool. <laughs> it was just like it was not prim. And then the moment that you go into the uh, the Bingley's estate or or their country home, then you really see that shine. Let's talk about Joe Wright's conscientiousness of that idea of. Class because this was not someone who'd ever read the book before he'd done he had not read the book the really? screenplay was his first introduction to the yeah he didn't read the book and he didn't watch later. the BBC series really nope, he kept everything fresh fresh that's fresh. so funny so but what one of the conscientious choices that he did do which I think is interesting is most people set this book in Edwardian England so think about like the empire dresses and like a little more of the prim and proper that's not what he's doing he's setting it in the late 1700s instead of the uh, yeah, late 1700s instead of the early 1800s um, and the difference there is that the French Revolution had just happened yeah. and so England was going through a whole thing where they were like oh shit we better start being nicer to our lower classes which is why Bingley and Bennett went to the went wow. to the party and they why they were slumming it which is it's, so, it's all really interesting because like you would think that that would get the Jane Austen society very upset and apparently they have major grievances with this film um but it makes sense because so it's it's the first draft of this story is 1797 so like she's writing it in 1797 that's where they set it um whereas 1813 where the book when she actually publishes it which is much later when it's set it, it's it's just a different context. And we don't really think about that, that 20 years in English history can be so, so different. But that's a great point, Becky, that French Revolution changed class structure, changed finances, changed political relations. It changed everything. So I think it's a, it's a brilliant move on the part of not just Joe Wright, but the screenwriter, Deborah Mogosh. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm saying, I think it's probably a very Gaelic class name that I'm kind of butchering. But um. Her version of the story, which she worked on for a very long time, well before Joe Wright came to the project, that time travel is very smart. 
And that, do we give her the credit for that time travel or is it? Yes, I believe so. That's amazing. I, I think that, oh, wow, that informs Definitely a lot. Joe Wright was, I think, on it because he points out that he doesn't, and I agree with him, like empire waist dresses are very unflattering. <laughs> the only character you see wearing one is uh, the character of Carolyn Bingley, played by Kelly Riley, because they would have assumed that she's so rich that she would have been wearing fashions a solid decade or 15 years before they became um, commonplace but it's it's really hard to photograph empire waste because it makes women just it takes all curves out it's just straight up and down um it's a very hard silhouette to pull off even for you know impossibly thin women so he really just wanted more flattering earthy organic dress shapes and so that was a natural 1797 decision uh, the other thing that they've done, too, here is um, they brought in Emma Thompson as an uncredited and, as far as we can tell, unpaid uh, script doctor. Um, and watching it, I was like, OK, these are interesting points I've never seen people make, especially about the societal stuff. For example, Charlotte explaining to Elizabeth why she's marrying Mr. Collins, because in the book is just assumed like Lizzie doesn't get it because Lizzie has the privilege of not having to get it. I've no money and no prospects. I'm already a burden to my parents. And I'm frightened. So don't judge me, Lizzie. Don't you dare judge me. And that part was written by Emma Thompson. So it's like, okay, I get it. And she, of course, had won her Academy Award, one of her many Academy Awards, uh, for writing for Sense and Sensibility, which I think is one of the best adaptations to both cover the romance and cover the societal stuff. Like, she's really great at the combination of the two. So I think her little added things of, like, people need to get this because they're not going to get it now, so it needs to be explained a little bit. There's also a whole, like... She also wrote the great sequence where um, Elizabeth is realizing her sister has run off with that uh, (laughs) that womanizer. I can't remember his name. (laughs) With Wickham. Yeah, sorry, Wickham. And... It's that scene where she's just walking around in a circle. She like goes behind the wall. She comes out. She can't even get it out of her mouth to her uncle um, and aunt and uh, Darcy. And like, I love that scene. So it's like it's like this little merry-go-round or this carousel of despair. And it's it, it just I think it's such a wonderfully choreographed scene. And so learning that that was Emma Thompson, I'm like, of course it was. I mean, Joe Wright, he just simply knows how to shoot a film. He just knows how to play. This is his first film. Like he had done television film. Yeah. work really impressively with um, this period. But this is his first feature theatrical film. And um, I don't think I knew that going into this film. That's really remarkable. It makes sense to me because I'm a huge fan of Atonement. And that is, I think, a really effective book adaptation. I love that book. The first 40 minutes of Atonement is literally the first 40 pages of the book. Perfectly done. Let's just yeah. put that out there. But it works. Oh, I mean, it really works. Perfectly. Trisha Ronan morphing into Ramola Garai. Like all of that. I'm just like, this is this is wondrous. <laughs> the, yeah, no, the first 40 minutes of that movie, I just got to put it out there. It's, it's perfect clockwork. We're talking, yeah. we're talking a Rolex or a Patek Philippe watch, like perfect. Um, <laughs> we're watching, now I'm going to bring us watch brand No, no, I, I, I've been watching a bunch of YouTube videos on watches for no good no, reason. No, we, we really do yeah. actually need to watch um, uh, like sponsorship yeah. on this podcast. Oh, so I, nice. I think um, a, a couple things that I would love to mention based off of that is, um, what was it? Sorry, Mr. Collins. You brought up Mr. Collins. So I got to just go there. Whoever that actor is. Oh, dude, Tom Hollander? Have you seen In the Loop? No. Oh, wait. I did long ago, I think. You know Tom Hollander. He looks really different. He was so familiar. He steals the show. And every once in a while, you watch a decent film. It doesn't have to be great. doesn't have to be. It could be bad. There's one person who just comes right in and just, like, owns everyone in the scene and just captivates me. And that performance there. That proposal. The proposal scene. 
his eye, laughing. his lack of blinking and just his, I'm um, just trying, just attempting at navigating at trying to get married in this game of trying to get wed uh, is, was just hilarious and, and beautiful. But before I am run away with my feelings, perhaps I may state my reasons for marrying. Firstly, that it is the duty of a clergyman to set the example of matrimony in his parish. Secondly, that I am convinced it will add greatly to my happiness. And thirdly, that it is at the urging of my esteemed patroness, Lady Catherine, that I select a wife. And, and, and that's, I think, another thing that makes this story so universal, as well as Sense and Sensibility. You know, Ang Lee adapted Sense and Sensibility. Like, what the hell does he have to do with uh, British families from the 1800s? He had claimed apparently everything. And that as coming from a Taiwanese family, he completely relates to the pressures of trying to get married and trying to hook up and all these things. And, and at the end of the day, what is the universal thread that we all relate to when we read Jane Austen or watch Pride and Prejudice is that we're afraid of being alone. And, mm. and, and, and that's, that's the thing. It's like, that's what the mom is hustling for. It's like, I don't want you to be 50 and alone. That's fucked. And it goes back to Mr. Collins and, and who ends up married. What's her name again? Like, Charlotte. you know, and it was, it was, I was convinced by Charlotte. I was like, yo, Liz, like. She has a nice house now and I'm happy for her. Yeah. And her husband's and then obviously, stupid, and but obviously he's going to Obviously they her. don't have sex, right? Yeah. There is no expectation of it. So one of the modern readings of that character is that Charlotte is gay. So oh. it doesn't matter who she would end up with is it she would just wouldn't be happy. And did you period. say that's because so she's that's... beyond childbearing years or because her husband is a priest? No, no, no. They would still they would still have sex and like that was but like at no point because like in the way the time period of the book works, if they were going to have children, they would have been having children, right? Like she would have been pregnant when Elizabeth goes to visit her. That's not what happens. So clearly their relationship is I mean, okay. I, I, okay. I, buy, I buy it. Is, the interpretation is their relationship is asexual. I buy it because it was just absolutely asexual there was no and she wasn't even going to give him a chance she was like no i'm here i'm just like we're just gonna do this she has her oh i love when she's like this is my own room for my own purposes he's not allowed to come in here we can say anything we want to each other and she's like pouring i'm like man i live in a like tiny two-bedroom apartment i need a room i need a room yeah. like that I need yeah a, a room of one's room. own I, as my wife Sylvia, she's actually reading *A Room of One's Own* by Virginia Woolf, and <laughs> and she's going through the whole thing where it's like, ah, the prose is weird, and this. And by page forty, she's like, absolutely, I need my own room. And look at this thing that he writes. She wrote about Shakespeare. You, you like women it. need this freedom that like men get to you know have. And 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 so yeah, I'm glad I'm glad that she got her own room. Our listeners can't see that as he's saying this, he's looking through the door to make sure she can't hear. <laughs> <laughs> and he's pointing at that, that was that it's was subconscious, funny. but like I love it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> All right. Um, I have read many, many Jane Austen novels over and over again. And I'm so on the fence about this adaptation. I appreciate what it is and what it's doing and the point of view it's doing. I don't buy the romance in this movie. I don't buy the chemistry, and I don't know why. I don't find it sexy. And I think there's an interesting thing in the that this movie actually has two endings, mm -hmm. uh, one for the U.K. market and one for the American market. Which is so and stupid. The UK, 
It's so stupid. And Joe Wright tried to fight it and unfortunately couldn't. But the U.S. market, or sorry, the U.K. one ends with like a little witty quip of like the two of them kind of like together. And then the U.S. version ends with the two of them in freaking 16 candles Ugh. where they're like next to each other. Gross. And like, yeah, it's it's 16 candles. It's really, it's I watched rough. both. I mean, I watched the U.S. version on Prime and any streaming version of this film. And when we've shown this film on Hollywood Suite, we get the U.S. version. There is no option for the other version. And so I actually thought that's the only end. And I I hate that ending. And then I went on YouTube. You can watch the UK version, and it's ethereal, and the the mist is coming in, and it's dark, and it's it's brooding, and it's it's very British, and uh, it's almost more Bronte than Austin. That like ending, yeah. um, which as I think we've talked in this podcast, that I'm team Bronte, <laughs> I'm, I'm team um, Bronte I mean, versus team Austin. I know. Makes, what but, makes yeah. the relationship so great between Liz and Darcy is that it's not that juicy romantic 16 candles in the first it's place intellectual. it's intellectual it's it's yeah. it's the vibe it's like there it's just there and my issue with this is when you introduce this kind of grit and this kind of realism and the focus is on the money etc um i found some of the wit was taken away and i found some of the magic and the romance and the playfulness was taken out i th- i think there's real despair in this though like what i'm getting from this version that's not in the other versions is like the stakes are a lot higher because these these daughters, if they don't marry, are only getting, what is it, like 500 a year or something? I can't remember. Yeah. However, that having been said, they cut all the Wickham plot line with Lydia almost entirely, which is the highest stakes climax moment. And you Fair need to though. understand what the what the actual, re, like why they are so fucked because, because whole, she yeah, ran no, off I with Lydia. I think that's there. Like the whole, fa- the family reputation will be ruined. It, like every it daughter is, but it's marry. not. Like when you watch the, like that's the thing with the miniseries is because you you have this breath for the passage of time so you can see how long they're gone how how they cannot find them like they're found immediately in this one it's like oh yeah uncle found them it's fine so like you have this like how long they have to sit in the fact that no one is ever going to marry them and they are screwed Um, and you sit in that a lot longer here you don't here it's like oh found them everything's fine and you know and Lydia shows up and is a bit is a bit of an idiot I mean I get that because I don't want to watch a three hour version of this film and this film is two hours it's six hours you don't have to sit through it but I will say I mean I get what you're saying about the chemistry and the romance I had not seen this film when it came out. I know Mr. Darcy, Matthew McFadden, solely for succession. You also notice this is the only time we have brought him and his performance up. Because he's not Darcy. Yeah, but I don't think Darcy. that's right. I, I, Did you hate him? I, lo- I loved him as Darcy. No, he, he's an all right Darcy, but like then I watched the BBC and, that, and like yeah, the first, and the first two minutes Darcy. with Colin Firth, I was like, that's the, Dar- that's the Darcy. That's I so hard. Sexy. It's a hard... It's hard. Yeah, that's a hard follow up. He shows up in a wet shirt and the UK lost their minds and needed to declare a national holiday. (laughs) Like, he's so attractive. It's ridiculous. But what if this film is for a different generation that are way younger than us and do not give a flying fuck about the BBC (laughs) Colin Firth version? Uh, This, for me, is that version. This is the version that is not for Jane Austen fans. No. This is the version to introduce Austen for people who don't like Austen. Which is why I think you like this version. Could, could it be? The, <laughs> so the interesting thing about it is the BBC obviously is rewarded by the fact that it's six episodes and it's long. We know that in its length, it can breathe and it can build and then the stakes can feel higher and the rewards will feel more like fulfilled, right? Um, through that character development. And you didn't really feel the love because we were going through a tempo and a rhythm that was like a metronome that Joe Wright was working towards. I think he intentionally went, I need to make this a certain pace. And you could feel that pace throughout where it's quick, quick, 
quick, quick, yeah. but very measured. So it's not like the pace works for the film, but it may not work for the story of Bride and Prejudice, the book, which works better in BBC. And so therefore the payoff may not feel fulfilled for you, but it may feel better for the 15 year old girl watching it from South Korea, watching it in mm -hmm. 2010. Because Which is interesting because then when I think about the move, the features where the movies have or the where the romance has worked for me in a feature and I sense and sensibility, the scene where Elizabeth tells, um, sorry, where um, Edward tells uh, Eleanor that he isn't married and she realizes what that means. And I mean, it's the performance of Emma Thompson. That movie is unbelievable. But you cry, too, and you're so and you're like, thank fucking God he can now marry you and he's not going to be an idiot and do the wrong thing. Right. Like you you get that breath there. And here I, I never got that breath. It's same thing. And um, I love Patricia Rosema's Mansfield Park. And there's a movie that goes gritty, right? It goes into the sex. There's lots of naked people. It goes into who and how evil these other slavery. people are. And it's the only, it's the slavery. Only one that has slavery in it. 100%. And, you know, the uncle who's been so good to her is a nightmare human, right? And you're just like, holy shit. Um, but that's another movie where you, it, it doesn't make it about the romance, but the romance still feels real. That's fair. I mean, I do see, though, thinking this is 2005, think about, like, what the biggest um, adaptations of Jane Austen would have been up to this point in that, let's say, the decade up to this point. Clueless, Bridget yeah. Jones's Diary, uh, Bride and, Bridget, and Prejudice, the um, Bollywood, like, this I appreciate that Joe Wright really was bringing Austin back to its authenticity. Where I think we have Agreed. a problem, Becky, is you're the worst audience for this film possible. And the only <laughs> reason well I aware. chose this film really is because of you trying to make you happy. And I'm realizing that I've done a huge disservice <laughs> because nothing will ever make you happy when it comes to Jane Austen. Uh, you are completely insatiable and hard to please. But you. Thank you, Alicia. <laughs> I mean that all as a compliment. Of course. I'm well aware. And, and, and when yes, you take a look at the comments on YouTube, like the girls, sorry, people are saying that that Michael Mc, Matthew McFadden is their Mr. Darcy. So yep. it's a generation. Well, they are. And, I, and everybody's going to have I'm this. here for that because I love yep. that he then graduated into Tom Wamswick and in succession, the biggest buffoon. <laughs> like, I just think he's such a fascinating actor. And, and watching his anniversary interviews for this film where he talked about like, the reaction of young girls because he was an unknown um and i yeah. will give one thing that little hand flex there's been much made of it online what it's when he flex? holds her hand to put her so he she's elizabeth's yeah. getting into the carriage and he goes oh. to like kind of do the gentlemanly thing um take her hand and help her into the carriage and there's a moment between them where their hands are touching and it's that first spark. And then as he walks off, Joe Wright um, closes in on his hand and his hand, I'm doing it for Eastern in the video, which- was No, I, I remember this scene now. I actually remember- And he goes noting. like this, like he's walking away like, yeah. oh my God, I can't handle it. I just touched her. Yeah. I love it. I love okay, it so I'll tell much. You, I'll tell you what, that scene, yes, I remember that scene. I remember noting- Oh, Joe, you're good at this. Like you, you, yeah. you, you catch those little. <laughs> Joe is lusty. Joe, Joe's a lusty man. He the... understands. He married. He then proceeded to have a relationship with Jane Bennett, Rosenman Pike for like the next four oh, or five years. Dude, I believe. Did you guys know trivia? IMDb cheat trivia. Did you know that um the guy who played um Mr. They were Beauty dating was dating yeah. two years yeah. ago and their exes. That's great. But can we go back to the hand? That yeah. is <laughs> yes, of course. That is what makes cinema different from all other arts. Time, mm -hmm. space, image, no words, a close-up. The capture of a, a moment. Capture, a split second. It's a really capture a split of second. Like, I'm getting goosebumps, you guys. A capture of a moment where he's so nervous, right? 
I felt that when uh, when in the BBC, when when Liz is going to uh, the Bingleys and is walking in her dirty boots and surprises Colin Firth Darcy and he goes, oh, 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 shit. Like, I thought that moment was was not as equal to that. But that's a moment where he's like, oh, fuck. He probably was thinking about Liz that whole day. Yeah. And then, off guard. and then she caught him off guard. And it's like just relating to that moment would be a it would be precious of a moment for anyone, you know. So, uh, you know, yeah, they're both good Darcy's, but I will vote for Colin Firth as the one. And that's fair. Okay. I'm not saying I'm just saying this is it's it's in some ways comparing apples and oranges. It, and I don't it think it's a fair. Comparison. No, no, it's no. Let's, let's not even compare it because let's let's talk about the apple and the orange because the Colin <laughs> The, the Colin Firth um, Darcy, like, I, I, this is not a new opinion. It's like, he's uh, just more snobby, right? He mm-hmm. he really has this whole, cl- he's the prejudice, right? He's full of it and full of the pride. And then the the other one by, uh, what what's his name? McFadden? Matthew McFadden. McFadden, yeah. He's the bumbly one. He's the socially awkward one. And I think, socially awkward. And, and I think Joe did go for that. And so they really are apples totally. and oranges. And 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 choose your choose your Darcy, right? Um, do you like the the cute, handsome, hunky kind of humble? Can I sleep awkward? with one and marry the other? <laughs> then who do we oh, kill, Mister Collins? Yeah, no, the... yes, yeah, sleep with McFadden, but but marry marry first. Yeah, no, I'd go the other way around. Okay, I'd rather well, not distinguish yes. why. Okay. All, all right. You, you, have you either of you seen the Laurence Olivier version? Yeah. No, I haven't. Okay. I won't even bother with that. Okay. It's Greer Garson, right? It's Lawrence. Yeah, well, Garson. actually, yeah, it's, it's, is quite a snob. So, yeah, maybe. Would, how, how is it? It's he? the same year as Rebecca. So, I mean, if you think about that yeah. year and Olivier is like playing a rich asshole. <laughs> he is sexy as yeah, AF in that movie. He's got the tight trousers going. He's super it's, sexy uh, in Rebecca, too. Really? Yeah, of course he is. Yeah. Yeah. All right. On that note, I have to end this episode because we are going over time. So uh, who knew? Who knew we would all get so excited about this? All right. So Alicia Fletcher, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Thank you. I would like to, I'm probably going to go out and get some Turkish delight. I want to give it another try. (laughs) I feel like I'm mature enough maybe to really dive into this. Uh, And I look forward to spinsterhood. Hey, listen, no, stop saying that. No, it's fine. Don't worry about (laughs) it. There's a Korean cooking show my partner and I love to watch where they talk about the difference between an adult taste and a child taste oh. and that they'll say something has a child taste and like that makes and usually that means it's like extra sweet or like it's super saucy mm-hmm. or whatever versus an adult taste which tends to be more subtler so we use that all the time and so that's what I think perhaps now you have an That's adult a really great taste. distinction because it also explains why I eat so many goldfish. Crackers. There you go. A child. Thank taste. you. <laughs> Eastern. You're welcome. Eastern you. Thank you so much for joining us for the first time. I'm sure it will not be the last. Oh, I passed the test. Thank you, Becky. <laughs> <laughs> you more than passed it, the test. It, it's an honor and a pleasure as always, Alicia and Becky. Um, and um, yeah, you know, we, we had we had two adaptations. Both one succeeded better than the other, but even in the success of uh, Pride and Prejudice, it's still it's still weird. It's it's a best of hits, right? So, you know, how do you make a perfect still room adaptation? for improvement? How do you make a perfect adaptation? It's hard. Can I ask you that question? What is the perfect adaptation? But for the movie for you, it was High Fidelity. The perfect high fidelity. You know what? I think the perfect adaptation is Misery. I think Misery hmm. is the perfect yeah. adaptation. Amazing, Alicia. That's a good. I mean, mine was Bram Stoker's Dracula. I'm yeah. sticking with that. Yeah. 
I can't, uh, and I know that's an atypical one, but, um, you know, we do have a show coming up on Hollywood Week called uh, Cinema A to, Z, A to Z, and we have a whole episode on books, which you, you will go. see Eastern talking about books. You'll see Becky talking about Jane Austen, including Mansfield <laughs> Park and Sense and Sensibility. Yes! And so um, we're very invested actually right now in book adaptations, and that's been a really fun exercise. Uh, and I know reading has gotten me through this pandemic in a big way. And I would say 50% of what I read is just based on what's being being adapted for film or for television or um, has been in the past. Uh, that's just kind of like really molding what I choose to pick up. Yeah. And finally, Eastern, do you want to tell us where people can hear more of your voice and see your face and check out what you're talking I mean, about? I, history, got, man. I got nothing set up right now. You guys were able to help me like finally bring confidence into podcasting. And so I think this is the debut. And who knows? I know I'm <laughs> going to be naming it Eastern Promises because I used to program Asian cinema at the Royal. And mm-hmm. I will expand beyond Asian cinema because there's way more in cinema that I cannot not talk about. Shoot, we'll see when that comes out. We'll see. I'm very we'll excited keep you posted, for that. listeners. <laughs> All right, and you can join us next week, of course, for our final episode of the season, where we will be watching Wolf Creek and The Proposition. They're awesome. They're both fantastic movies. They're just difficult watches, but you know we've got a lot to say about them. That's coming up next week. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free. Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland. And today featured Alicia Fletcher and Eastern Yu as guests. Supervising producer is Emily Gagne. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.